good evening. Let's pray before we start the teaching of the word. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for having the opportunity one, one more time to be gathered with your people, to rejoice in the singing and preaching of your word. We pray that you bring your word, Father, in power, with the strength of your spirit, that the world may meet, Lord, our needs for everything, Father. We ask you for your goodness and presence in our midst at this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We've been in the radio program talking about the attributes of God and it's been really a blessing as we study those topics and find so much uh, to learn and particularly to apply to our lives uh, to the point that many times when we study those things, we don't expect primarily, we think that we're going to teach them to others, but we find ourselves being edified more and more. Um, uh, I've been preaching in Philippians for since the beginning, or this one year already. But I stopped the series to uh, get into this topic of uh, the attributes of God. Um, today, I want to talk about the holiness of God. Um, I want we to touch on three main aspects. One is what is the what is holiness? What is the holiness of God? how that the holiness manifests in creation and the implications of that holiness for salvation and for our life. Um, the first thing is about holiness. What is holiness? Um, the main thing to keep there, the, the meaning of the word is to set apart, but in relation to God, in what I was studying from uh, systematic theology of uh, Wayne Gruden, he defines the holiness of God as God being completely separated, set apart from sin and moral corruption and devoted completely to his honor. And God's the only being that by worshiping, Honoring himself does not commit sin. And we see in the scriptures over and over how God called his people to praise him, to adore him, to bring honor to his name. And at first sight, it may look like something vain, but when we go and look closely, it's exactly the opposite. He's the only being excellent perfect in all of his attributes in such a way that if God allows we to worship something else, he's not giving us the best. He cannot worship anything else but him. And we see since the beginning 
of scripture how his holiness shape in many ways the things that we see in scripture in the bible one is the difference between the god of scripture and those pagan deities in the old testament one of those is molech we see how sacrifices were made to this god to the point that children were being passed through fire to appease those false deities um in jeremiah chapter 32 verse 35 the lord says uh, and they built the high places of baal which are in the valley of the song of hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to molech which i did not command them nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause judah to sin so we see there how the people that were worshiping this false god and in particular the ammonites that were of those pagan nations that were close to israel worship this uh, idol and they will offer what they thought was the most precious thing that they had that was their children no doubt something of uh, a incredible value but we even see that the god of creation of all the universe even that offering will not satisfy god's justice and holiness and how all the opposite is an abomination to offer a human sacrifice to try to please the god of heaven and earth we may see that another case is uh baal that we saw in that text that people will offer animal sacrifices to worship dead people and that too was an abomination to god since the beginning of scripture in genesis we see how the holiness of god start setting god aside of all of those false divinities and put him in a unique place in such a way that man could not imagine how to please god unless god revealed to us in psalms uh, 106 verse 28 to see what we were talking about baal we see the scripture says they joined themselves also to baal of peer and eight sacrifices made to the dead peer was apparently the mountain the location where they will worship this false deity and god condemns that once more so god we see there that by virtue of his holiness is completely set aside and the same thing he was demanding to the children of israel to not contaminate themselves in any way with other uh, people and that's one of the things that we see in scripture over and over 
where God will not allow the children of Israel to marry or have intimate dealings with the surrounding nations because they will end up adopting their customs and religions and rituals and end up uh, committing idolatry. And as we read scripture, we see that over and over. So we see that his holiness is unique and special. And not only how God asked the people of Israel to behave, but in creation. We see in creation since uh, Genesis chapter 1, where God uh, creates the universe on human beings. And in the creation, we see that in verse uh, 4 and verse 12 of chapter 1, verse 18, 21. How God, as the days of creation are progressing, says that those things are good. He's seeing that everything that he's creating is pure. Another way to translate that word good will be beauty. And we see how God is pleased with what he's creating. And in verse uh, 26 of uh, Genesis... Chapter 1, I read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, created them. Male and female, he created them. So we see there not only the way that God is separate and the sins that he has his people, but now we see in creation how God created everything perfect without corruption, without blemish. And in the case of human beings, we, at the end of creation, in day number six, uh, we read in verse 31 that when God made man, in Genesis 1.31 says, God saw everything that he had made and indeed was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Not only God found it good, but very good at the end of creation. Everything was created without blemish, perfect, without sin, without corruption. And we see again that quality, that attribute of holiness and perfection, even in the things that God creates. We, we human beings, he makes something Particular that is, we are created in his image, in his likeness. In that, what is called part of his attributes, the quality and nature of God, he communicates to us some of those. So some of uh, God's attributes come, he has communicated to us, and one is reason and intelligence. We can reason and understand the way the universe works. Because God is a rational, intelligent being. And he created a universe that has rationality. 
That is an amazing, outstanding thing to say. Things from the outside seem to be working randomly, but everything works in a perfect way. And that's why we are here today. And even in the Middle Ages, scientists that were of Christian influence will see the universe and thought that they could study the universe because it was created by an intelligent, rational being. That is God. And they expected to be able to understand that universe. Something that the unbeliever could not say because they believed that the universe came by itself randomly, not created, but but an almighty or knowing God. We see how creation is perfect there in the beginning in Genesis 1, how God gives us not only the intelligence, the reason, but moral qualities that is part of his attributes. In this case, we can image that holiness, that sanctity, that love that God has. Not at the same degree, but we can be a reflection. And that was what we were created for in the beginning, to reflect, to image forth God's moral qualities that he communicated to us in creation. Um, all of us know the story how God warned, uh, do a warning to Adam and Eve that the day that they violated his commands and eat from the tree, they will die. And the promise of God does not fail. They disobey God. They are tempted by Satan. They fall. And with that, death comes, corruption, and not only that, eternal separation from God. That is condemnation in hell. So man, before the fall, had a fellowship, a communion with God. And we see how the command that God gave them as being that were morally responsible and spiritually responsible before God had implications in the here and now to their bodies and to creation. They started aging, sickness came into this world and they physically die and not only that, eternally too by condemnation, by being lost without God and lost all the fellowship that they enjoy. So we see too that back then in the times of Christ, religious people, philosophies came that had a different view again than scripture. We see how a movement called Gnosticism that comes from the word Gnosis means knowledge. And how this group thought that the body was Something despicable, not to appreciate, not worthy of anything. And the soul was the pure, special thing to them. So they felt that when we die, that is a good thing to happen because our souls are liberated from the cage, from the prison of the body. But as we see in the scripture, that is not the case. God created our physical bodies and they have a tremendous values for him. We see how the Gnostics believe that the material world, all that we see around with our senses, was not created by the Almighty God, 
but an inferior evil deity. Because to them that was not good. Even a philosophical movement called dualism that sees the soul and the body as two completely unrelated things menos, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, undermining the value of the body and putting the soul, the spirit, as the main thing to worship. When we go to scripture, we see a completely different picture where God considered life priceless and even his creation. So the scripture don't see this dichotomy between the soul and the body. Even though they are separate, God sees them as valuable and worth redeeming both. To the point that in this day and age, we see in the church, in Christian churches, a super emphasis in the spiritual things where somebody may say, I'm safe. Um, I know God, he's my uh, Christ, he's my savior, but still he's not my Lord. And the person may live a life of sin, completely controlled by their desires, and they consider themselves Christian. If we trace that back in time, we will see that it's not new. Because as we saw before, Gnosticism and dualism believe the same thing. To the point that today, I don't know exactly how long that doctrine has been, has been around, but there's a doctrine of the carnal Christian that believe that you can be saved, but you are not completely surrendered to Christ's lordship in your life, and still you are controlled mainly by your senses and your desires and your wants. But when we go to scripture, that is not backed up by scripture. There's no such a type of Christian in the Bible. There's no uh, spiritual Christian and a carnal Christian. That is an oxymoron in itself. All of that to show that when we study scripture, we see that God and his attributes has profound implications to the way that we see life, to our cosmovision, the way that we see the universe working, and our life itself. Um, not only we see how God is, we see the creation, how he manifests differently, but we see too the implications for our salvation and human beings. We see that because of God's holiness and man's fall, there's a separation. There's a gap that we cannot bridge on our own that causes separation from him to the point that we can never be directly in his presence in this fallen nature. One of the things that we see in scripture is the patriarchs. How the Bible talks about Abraham and Jacob, Isaac, even Moses, seeing the Lord. But if we look closely in Exodus chapter 33, we see how Moses is asking God that he wants to see his glory. And how God expressed to him that 
no man can actually see him in full glory. In verse 20 of chapter 33 of Exodus, I read, But he said, God, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So all those verses in scripture that we see that Jacob, Abraham saw God face to face is using human language. We see what is called anthropomorphic language, language in the form of humans to express God's glory being manifested in a particular and special way, uh, no doubt, to human beings, but not his full glory. And everything comes back to his holiness. God is so separate from sin and corruption that again in this fallen nature we cannot be fully in his presence uh, even the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 1 makes this clear we see in a scripture there in the chapter 1 of uh, the gospel of John where Christ says in verse 18 that no one has ever seen God but the only son that is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Christ is the embodiment of what God is. What we know of God was manifested in this earth more uh, uh, completely in the person of Christ. The Apostle Paul even Later than that, in the epistle of Timothy, has something to say about it. And it's important to remember that Paul had a vision of God that was unique. That was not even given to him to reveal. And he had an extraordinary conversion, as we have read in the book of Acts. And even Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, in relation to seeing God, and I'm going to read the, the text. Who alone has immortality dwelling in an approachable light whom no man has seen or can see to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So Paul too confirms one more with Jesus Christ and a scripture in the Old Testament that no man has ever seen God. So what we see through scripture with those prophets that were great men of God, that God manifested to them, are glimpses of his glory in a particular way. But not seeing this holy, pure God in all his majesty, because in the sinful, fallen nature that we have, we cannot see him. And that's what Christ came to do, to fully show us who was God when he took his human nature uh, as the second person of the Trinity? Salvation only can take place because of Christ. And we see again the pattern. The, we see the cohesion, the coherence of this. Who God is, how he manifests that in creation, how God is alone separated from corruption... Now the implications for salvation, how Christ comes 
and has no sin at all. Live a perfect life in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. The scripture says that Christ was similar to us in everything but without sin. So we see that he lived a perfect life carrying the sin of his people on the cross. And God, because of his justice and righteousness, crushed him. Like says the scripture in Isaiah 53. But not only because of the death of Christ are we saved. That will not have been enough. Christ lived a perfect life fulfilling every single aspect of the law. So if Christ has not completely fulfilled that, we will not be saved because we will be unrighteous in his eyes. Christ lived a perfect life and that righteousness is put, is imputed to our failure when we repent and believe. And that is the only way that we can have fellowship, communion restored with a holy God. Because God sees us covered with the righteousness of Christ. We see how, again, this holiness has such a pervasive impact in everything uh, that we see in this side of, of life. And for us, seeing that is going to have an impact, an effect. Something that we see in Isaiah, a, a, prophet, that was, a prophet that was a lover of God, a pious man. And when Isaiah has that vision of God, again, without seeing him in his full glory, I'm going to read in chapter 6 of uh, Isaiah, verse 1 through 5, what the prophet uh, wrote. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted, High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes has seen, has seen the king, the Lord of hosts. We see that Isaiah thought that he will die. When he got that vision, again, the holiness of God was so overwhelming that he felt that he would drop dead right there. He felt that he will die right there in the moment. So God in his goodness does not show to us in all his glory unless we may lose our life in this fallen nature. And what the implications of that are for we that by his grace has been saved. For the redeemed people 
that God has that is the walking in newness of life. The having met God in conversion, the being saved by him is going to have a strong impact in the way that we live. In Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read verse uh, 3 and 4. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We see that that attribute that not only God has, but Christ manifested, and that is imputed to us by his justice, that God sees us covered by him, is to have a particular impact in our life that we are to imitate and to walk in newness of life. In Ephesians uh, chapter 2, in the next chapter of the same book, we see in verse 8, 9, and 10 that says that we were saved by grace through faith, and none of that is from us but a gift of God, not by work, so nobody should boast and in verse 10 is the important part that says to walk in those good works that he prepared for us beforehand. So we see again the implications of that salvation that it's a natural flow of that holiness of God in order for we to commune and fellowship with him. In the book of Peter, the first epistle, In chapter 1, verse uh, 14 through 16, I will read this uh, text. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And... The Apostle Peter is just quoting the Old Testament in Leviticus, the same expression that God said to the children of Israel about his holiness, how that attribute, that quality, that property of God is so manifested. Um, so then to close up, we saw what is holiness, the holiness of God, how God manifests that holiness to his people how we see that holiness in creation and not only in all that he created, but in us too, how we got that unique and tremendous privilege of uh, being able to image forth some of those attributes that he communicated to us, like the moral quality of being able to walk reflecting his Holiness and the implications that they ha that they have for our life here and now. So, in such a way that we cannot 
see this dichotomy, this division that even in the modern church are with what we profess and the way that we walk or how we behave because they are closely tied together according to scriptures. Um, and a couple of applications that we may take from this is to ask ourselves if we think of God as being holy, first and foremost, as being separate, completely unique where he's at, and that we are to meditate on this truth. To think of ourselves where we are. We are here today, spiritually speaking, in our walk with God. If we think about one or two years ago, if we see progress, if we see that we are walking in newness of life, if we see that being reflected in us, um, and to meditate in this truth. You know, meditation that we maybe think of something that is only for oriental religions is not is something that we have to practice in our spiritual life. Meditation will be, so to speak, the digestive uh, system of the soul. In the same way that we have a stomach and intestines that absorb and digest food, the pancreas, the liver, all of those organs that help us eat a meal and get the benefit, get the vitamins, the nutrients of that. In the same way, by meditating on a text about God's attributes, we can internalize that and pray especially that God through the Spirit, through His Holy Spirit, enable us to apply that, that we may live in such a way that we bring honor to His name. So these uh, implications are for the here and now as we see not only for something that we profess in the past how many however how many years ago we did it for salvation but to be growing every day more and more according to his image and another thing that we can do is to to pray to commit ourselves to consecrate to be consecrated to God remember that the Lord is completely devoted to his honor we are called to be devoted to his glory too. And if you are here today without the Lord, this is not for a non-believer, but God commands you to repent and believe the gospel that you may get to know him, that you may have communion with him because, because of the fallen nature and sin that will only take somebody to eternal perdition. So let's uh, pray that the Lord blesses his word and apply it to our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, for your mercy to us. Because you have given us salvation, the Holy Spirit, Scripture, Prayer as means to an end, Lord, as means to grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ and ultimately to magnify your holy and great name. Come in power, Lord, with your spirit 
edify your people, and if somebody don't know you here, bring them to Christ for salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.